Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. Welcome to Conversations with CEI. I'll be your host today. My name is Dr. Margie Urban. I'm an infectious disease physician at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. I'm also the medical director of the CEI Sexual Health Center of Excellence, a clinical training center for New York State clinicians regarding STIs and other matters of sexual health. Today, we're going to take a behind-the-scenes look at the 2021 STI treatment guidelines issued by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Catherine Shu will be our guest. Dr. Shu is the medical director for the Division of STD Prevention and HIV AIDS Surveillance at the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. She is also the director of the Rattel STD HIV Prevention Training Center, one of eight STD clinical training centers funded by the CDC. Dr. Shu is professor of pediatrics and attending physician in pediatric infectious diseases at Boston University Medical Center. She is board certified in the areas of pediatrics, pediatric infectious diseases, and is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. We're very fortunate to have her with us today. Welcome, Dr. Shu. So with that formal introduction, let me welcome you, Kathy. We do know each other through crossing through the world of sexual health over several years. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for the invitation, Margie. So what we had hoped to do today is to to go behind the scenes a little bit in the development of the STI treatment guidelines. And I know that you've been involved, at least in in the last two iterations, through your work with CDC. So I'm hoping you can give us some insights into the process for for putting out the guidelines. Yeah, it's a really incredible process. Although CDC has its imprimatur on the guidelines themselves, I think it's important for people to know that there's a whole set of individuals across the nation that contribute to this. I think somewhere between 50 and 100 people are on various work groups and tracks to produce this enormous document, which we try to make thinner every time. But as the evidence base grows, it's hard to make the document shorter. For many rounds, Dr. Kim Morkowski, who holds a joint appointment between the CDC Division of STD Prevention and Emory University as one of our fellow infectious disease physicians, She's led this group, and it's at times like herding cats. Can you imagine a nation's worth of sexual health and STD experts coming to grips with gray areas of clinical concern and how do we resolve them and where has the evidence base changed or not changed in a two-day meeting that tends to be held, I want to say, about a year to two years in advance of when the guidelines ultimately get released because the process is so arduous. Kim and others at CDC have to shepherd it through multiple layers of governmental clearance, and the end product is very strong and heavily vetted, not only by people of CDC, but also by multiple other governmental entities, many national clinician organizations that you might think have a stake in how STDs are treated or SDIs are treated. Just takes a long time. 
<laughs> it does, as you know, the Clinical Education Initiative does a lot of clinical education around topics related to HIV, STIs, PrEP, and PEP. And you, through the Prevention Training Centers, do, do so much. And I'm sure you get this question of why do they take so long that, um, that, that it's a common question from clinicians who are waiting for the new issue. Yeah, I think waiting is always a catch-22, <laughs> right? We always eagerly await the guidelines. Yet, if the evidence base or the papers that formulate why we change are already present or are potentially present in other guidelines that are available to us. For example, the Canadians work at a different pace than we do, or the United Kingdom has the British Association of Sexual Health that coordinates their processes. The process is what it is for now. Many times people have thought about potentially making it modular so that if there is a need for a more acute update, they'll do it just in that subsection of the document. And that has already happened. If there's something crucial that public health really wants clinicians to, to coordinate a response in terms of a difference in treatment or a difference in management, they have released elements of this, this set of guidelines in advance of the totality of the guidelines. Like this has happened several times now. We've seen it happen with gonorrhea specifically because the treatment for gonorrhea really needs to shift faster than the document itself. But the process is what it is because it's intended to make sure that all the stakeholders, there, there aren't any severe sort of biases that get introduced by either people who speak up very forthfully, forth, forthrightly, or it's really to eliminate bias in many ways. And it just takes a long time. Everything takes far longer than you wish it. It's really a beautifully written document, though. I, I think it's, you know, there's lots of guidelines in medicine and, and in infectious diseases, and, and these are some of the best. I, I always tell our trainees that they should be reading these cover to cover. They're so clear. You, it's, it's quite evident that every word is deliberately chosen. <laughs> I don't know, Margie. I sleep with them under my pillow. And I have all my trainees also try to absorb them by osmosis. No, I'm just kidding. But it is a it is a joke. We we wish we could almost recite them chapter and verse at times. I look at them frequently, even though I know them quite well. Yes. So I imagine uh, you you sort of alluded to this that, that sometimes there's louder voices, people who who uh, you know are are passionate about one treatment or position or study that they feel is so important. So how, how do you handle differing opinions among experts? So each subsection of the guidelines is headed by usually an external to CDC workgroup member. That's not always the case. It's more of a true collaboration between CDC experts who may be the most expert in the field or, and clinicians and researchers for that subsection of the document. So for example, I had the honor of chairing the child sexual abuse and assault subsection of the document two rounds ago. And I've sat on some of the other committees chaired by other people. And what we do is Kim Morkowski gives us our marching orders and coordinates a process where we have key questions. The key questions must be answered in an evidence-based fashion with current literature. So we do deeper dives into the literature searches. We pull the papers and then we grade them 
the grading system is not dissimilar to what USPSTF is required to use or any of the evidence grading systems to be able to rank order the evidence within the paper that we're citing. All of this gets presented publicly at that meeting I mentioned that tends to be held about a year or two in advance of the guidelines release. There's a lot of work that then happens, both because work group members work on revising the actual language within the guidelines, and because it is a CDC document, CDC authors themselves finalize the language together with the work group leads and work group members. So imagining that takes place after the meeting and then having that enormous document um, have one voice. That's the most extraordinary thing to me is that it really, I, Kim Morkowski and her team are just extraordinary because if you have 150 pages that are written by somewhere between 10 and 20 key authors, the voices sound very different. Yet the guideline is vetted carefully for making sure there are no contradictions. And yeah, it's, it still comes out as unified. And it's because of the way it's designed. I've been asked a few times why the guidelines include non-STIs like bacterial vaginosis or candidal vaginitis. Sometimes in the, with intent of the question being that that it could be stigmatizing to sort of include those conditions. There's a lot of focus on stigma now, I think, and, and its impact on healthcare and healthcare-seeking behavior. So I, I didn't know if you had any comments about that, but it's sort of an interesting way to look at that. That's a great question. You know, Margie, I'm not actually sure I know the answer to what in the history of this document drove the fact that they are incorporated. I would say now, taking a step back, I think you and I as ID people in 2022 think a lot more about not just having the pathogen in our laser sites, but thinking about where the pathogen is residing on the body in terms of the microbiome, right? And so suddenly, it almost seems prescient that we would include things like vaginitis vaginosis because that winds up being the context in which you treat many patients who have female anatomy and the treatments we use sometimes in sight or in gender predisposition to some of these and vice versa. So, you know, I don't know that that was the original plan, but I think a lot of what we do should be contextualized in that microbiome that we have underthought about. I don't know about you, whether you've had thoughts about that too. I always imagined it was, you know, because when people come in with symptoms, they don't know what's causing the symptoms. And it could be, could be an STI or it might be some other itis or osis, as you said. But I think that's a great answer. Uh, that may have been fortuitous that they were included. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll look back on it in that way. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so you, you sort of alluded to our ID background, and, and so sometimes you go through there in, in the guidelines, and even as, as someone who's written the guidelines, you say you, you reference them, right? And you'll read it, and it will say, seek ID consultation. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a well-referenced document, you know there's no answer, right? <laughs> Pretty much when it gets to that point, when you need to seek other experts' help, (laughs) 
I often read that section and I think, well, gee, what happens if I don't know the answer? <laughs> I have to talk to myself or is it my left brain talking to my right brain? Right. All sorts of things cross my mind. I do think, though, you know, any one of us that contributes to this document, aside from Kim, who really has the grand master plan, I think, and there are a handful of others, like Laura Bachman in particular at CDC as the medical director of the Division of STD Prevention this time also had a strong hand. And of course, Gail Bolin, each one of them, formerly ID clinicians, mind you, right? Short of them, everyone else in the nation probably has more of a niche or perspective on certain aspects of the guidelines. And we are not expert in every aspect. Some of us are more generalists than others, but everything is, at the end of the day, the muscles we flex. So if you answer a heck of a lot of questions because you're an ID doc working at a women's hospital, you know, you're going to do your darndest to keep up with that piece of that section of the literature. When I think about this, I often consult colleagues. I would ask you a persnickety syphilis question. If I had it and you were close to me, like right around the corner from me, I'd wander around to your office and do that. And we frequently do that. So I should mention part of the reason I got involved in the guidelines was because CDC does fund some of us to lead clinical STD training centers. And we are sort of the implementation arm of the guidelines in some ways. We disseminate the knowledge around them, all of these training centers, or the evidence base, or we say, here's the evidence base. You make a decision, you clinician on the front lines, you ultimately it's your patient. These are only recommendations. So when we do that, we find that we can ask each other. And there's a whole network of us, I think, across the nation. And that is probably a byproduct of this guidelines work group or these sets of work groups. Many of us train others, uh, younger trainees, and we'd love to grow other people thinking someday we will retire and the field will go on perfectly fine (laughs) without us. So yes, I think we ask each other a lot of questions too. Yeah, that's a good segue. So so that network, as you say, has a a service where you you can submit a clinical question, right, to um, to to get a, an answer. I think by email is how you do it. Is that right? Yeah, your choice. You submit the question. You either can get an email response or a phone response. But as this question submitter, the clinician question submitter, you get to choose how quickly the person vetting the call should get back to you within one day, within five days. It's never longer than that. And that network is www.sddccnclinicalconsultationnetwork.org. Yeah, and so our clinical education initiative has a similar program. Ours is a phone, like a 1-800 type of number, which can be found at ceitraining.org. And we get clinician calls from from New York State, not, not nationwide. But it does give you a little bit of an insight of, of what's happening, what you know, how how practice evolves, and even sometimes little blips or clusters of unusual occurrences. And what we're seeing now is almost entirely, almost 100% of calls are related to syphilis. All of the STIs, at least the reportable STIs that we that we know about, are rising. It seems, and in our state, syphilis is on the way up quite a bit probably similar for you, I would imagine. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I, I've i been around long enough in the field now to, I think we're on the brink of returning to 80s levels of um, sexually transmitted infections. 
you can generate these gorgeous U-shaped curves. I spent a lot of my time marinating with surveillance data here in Massachusetts and elsewhere. And you can actually look at the three main reportable STIs. And with the exception of chlamydia, where there had been huge changes in the way we diagnose it, if you just look at syphilis and gonorrhea, we've, we've gone back to 80s levels. And that really means that people will have more and more questions as it resurges. And as it resurges, right, if we knew that, you know, out of 100 cases, three cases would be more complicated with a neuroocular otic manifestation. Now, if we're up to 1,000 cases, then that'll be 30 cases. But those are 30 right. cases that 27 of which never would have been seen before if we didn't have this kind of case volume. I'm getting a lot more questions from community health centers, from people really on the front lines in communities seeing this feeling, this resurgence, feeling a resurgence in pelvic inflammatory disease, perhaps partly driven by lack of chlamydia and gonorrhea screening during the COVID pandemic. Uh-huh. Right. So as you said, that U-shaped curve means that there is a generation of clinicians who, who just didn't see syphilis if you didn't train in the... 80s and early 90s, you had this period where there was not much syphilis or it was in very specialized populations. So we've seen, even today, actually, I got a call of someone whose shanker was diagnosed by biopsy. So so never had the testing. I actually didn't train until as a resident. I was a resident between 95 and 98. So I actually post-date that era where HIV co-infection was so common was much more common with syphilis and other things. So it's just been fantastic because I think we're very lucky in our field to also have some people who have been around long enough to school us. So we actually met when I was involved with with the prevention training centers some years ago and you, you were involved and you were our very first keynote speaker for a conference that CEI puts on, uh, the first annual, which I think we're up to the seventh or eighth now. And at the time, the guidelines had just come out then. Also, it was the 2015 guidelines had come out and you did a talk called the top 10 from the, from the 2015 guidelines. And you gave a, a list of your take of you know, the most important recommendations in these guidelines. And there were some things in there that, that now are just matter of course, but we're kind of big news back then, like sort of routine extragenital testing, which we just know about that now. But, but back then, it, it was a bit novel. Yeah. So I'm curious what you think, which, what's your view into the future of what are, what are going to be the, the things that will be commonplace that are new in these guidelines? I haven't thought about that talk in a few years. I evolved the talk into the top five because <laughs> I realized no one had the attention span to cover that anymore. <laughs> started to sharpen my talking points. And then now I, I think I've really gotten it down to two. <laughs> I don't know about you, Margie, but I was sort of thinking about what's the main message this time in 2021? And I've just been doing this show on the road with something called Earthquakes in Treatment for Chlamydia and Gonorrhea. I think not only are these so commonly seen in almost every practice setting that deals with screening and primary care, whether it be in private offices, community health centers, or STI clinics, right? And there are such huge changes in the messaging around how we treat chlamydia now, not just with a single dose of a medication, but twice daily for a week. What? Why are we doing this? Or 
why are we doing this complete reversal of everybody was coached on more than one drug will prohibit the development or at least stem the tide of antimicrobial resistance, right? And here we are, why are we now back to just a single drug for gonorrhea? And to really get those messages across, in many of the talks I do nowadays, I focus a lot about the why for both of those, because I think to do the pivot and do it carefully and correctly with which patient populations is so important. And it's just a very enriching approach to just say, we're doing a deeper dive today into the main SDIs that everybody sees. And then I end on, oh yeah, I, I sneak in a couple of things like, you know, there's a new section on mycoplasma genitalia. <laughs> We've got to talk about ocular, otic, and neurosyphilis. I mean, it's 2022, the numbers are coming back, base case scenario, et cetera, right? Complicated disease will be seen. So we've got to be able to deal with it and deal with it quickly. Thinking about some newer therapies or going back to older therapies like secnitazole for BV or metronidazole, do you really have to counsel every patient that they shouldn't drink while taking that medication? What was that evidence base really based on? And just that expansion on extragenital screening guidance to others, others meaning not so much a focus on male anatomy individuals who have sex with male anatomy individuals anymore, or what were previously termed men who have sex with men, but rather everyone as sexual repertoire increases across many populations. We found the prevalence has increased and the transmissibility of the organism is common enough that this thinking for populations that have sex with the opposite gender is important as well for extragenital screening. So those are some of my main highlights, but I've been, oh my goodness, it's just been so much fun to really drill down on chlamydia and gonorrhea and unpick the why of what we're doing in 2022. That's yes. what I've done this time. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I, you really have to go to the evidence base to show that it's, it's a hard sell to switch from single dose therapy. So you, you really have to, I, I think, take a look to convince yourself that this is a wise move, right? And, yeah. and wasn't really until I, drilled down on that subsection of the guidance document, the guidelines. And it actually mentions how prevalent rectal infection is in women who are not necessarily the women who disclose that they are engaged in anal receptive intercourse. In fact, it's not at all thought to be linked to that. In fact, it's simply what I politely term the dribble back phenomenon during sex messy. <laughs> and once you realize that the prevalence, the prevalence estimates at the rectal site for chlamydia co-infection between the chlamydia vaginal, cervical, genital urinary site, and rectal site is two-thirds of women, you realize you're doing your patient population a disservice if you do not use a drug that eradicates both sites, if there's auto-inoculation that could potentially be happening. So once I figured that out, and I, they, they had me at two-thirds. And that was enough for me to say, no, I don't have to test everyone. I pretty much do want to go with doxycycline, struggle to get my patients to comply, set those alarms, make sure they eat food before they eat the medication so they don't upset their stomach. And yeah, then, then it becomes easier, I think. I don't know. What did, you, what did you develop as some of the messages? I felt like there were two messages. There was the concomitant infection, so re rectal and cervical or what's sometimes called vaginal, and 
also the head-to-head doxycycline versus azithromycin. You had to really look at that data to, it's pretty compelling, I think, that doxycycline is superior in rectal infections. So yeah. once you had those two pieces, it seemed like there's no choice. It was also really important to realize that doxycycline, at least in one of those two studies about how it was so much better in treating rectal chlamydia, asymptomatic Mm -hmm. rectal chlamydia in men who have sex with men, at least in one of those two studies, they absolutely disproved this notion that it's less tolerated than azithro. In fact, that that arm of the study, taking doxy rather than fake pills for a week, did better in terms of tolerance. And I found that very interesting because as a clinician, I would not have guessed that. I would have had a presupposition that would have been incorrect. So I, I want to circle back to syphilis. As I said, we're, we're seeing a lot of syphilis in, in New York and even seeing quite a lot of syphilis among those who are pregnant. So of course, that raises the possibility of congenital syphilis. And that also has gone up nationally and, and for us in New York, and I imagine for you in Massachusetts as well. That's a troublesome development, I think, one, one that we, we really don't want to see congenital syphilis. So I'm, I'm curious in, in your role with the health department, if you have any innovations and ideas to sort of tackle that, that big problem. I think we first realized after years of not a single case of congenital syphilis being reported to us at the health department after almost uh, several years span. When there was a year where somewhere between five and seven cases were reported to us, which seems so low compared to other states that fight a morbidity statistic that's even greater than that, we were shocked the year that that happened. So that already produced a certain level of action, especially since, as you know, Margie, my home turf, right? My roots are as a pediatric infectious disease specialist. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And then I had a wonderful colleague at a meeting remarked me, and this colleague of mine, Anatole Menon-Johansson, he's, he's in the UK, and he said, how can this be okay in the United States that there is any congenital syphilis? Because, you know, you treat the mother, and there is practically no, not very much breakthrough infection once the mother is correctly and adequately treated and reinfection is prevented by partner tracing. And that really shocked us into action. These conversations, revisits to, you can prevent this with penicillin. Thank goodness this organism just doesn't know how to evolve away from penicillin control. So that was the first round. We started a congenital syphilis prevention project where we co-follow anybody who has a TREP and a non-TREP positive who's known as gender female within our surveillance system, we call the provider and immediately find out whether or not that person is pregnant to be able to sieve out the ones that we need immediate action on. Because we can't take time and do contact tracing on our our normal pace. Instead, we try to speed it up because there's so much more prevention possibility here. So that was our first move. That only goes so far right? If people aren't screening and if the prevalence increases to the point where even after a single screen, somebody who engages in prenatal care, if the prevalence increases so much that they are at risk for acquisition during pregnancy and they didn't have it at the beginning, but maybe they acquire it during the course of pregnancy. 
So we've finally reached the 10 per 100,000 mark, which to us, through a couple of different analyses, we arrived at this thought that if women 15 to 44 were at 10 per 100,000, which seems so rare still, it was probably going to be worthwhile because the curve was just going up and up and up. There's no vaccine in sight. There's no other way to prevent this. You have to find it, treat it, and then secondarily prevent it. We just decided, you know what, we need to reinstitute third trimester screening broadly. And so that was our other stroke two years ago. And wouldn't you know it, prevalence is so high, we've actually identified a handful of cases across our Commonwealth who have acquired and we have prevented further transmission to the as yet unborn fetus who became a healthy infant because we found that they acquired between first and third trimester screens. Uh, That nearly made me fall over because that really tells you women of reproductive age are at risk for acquisition of this. We were not able to find risk factors for many of these women. That's, that was the other telling thing. USPSTF guidelines are very clear. You know, you should screen people more than once if they have risk factors. What risk factors? That they were young and pregnant, not particularly from one geographic region, not particularly of a specific race, ethnicity, or a particular country of origin. None of those. We couldn't find them in the handful who had acquired syphilis. So that universal tactic for such a cheap screen, I mean, the cost of syphilis screening now using the reverse algorithm has really gone down, I think. So that, I think, has been, those have been some of our key strategies. You got to find the pregnant women to really drill down and prevent further transmission. That's very similar to what we have seen. And and actually, in the guidelines, they they strongly recommended third trimester screening, right? But they Mm -hmm. didn't quite mandate it. I know New York City has mandated it. We've done locally, have instituted that, and like you, have found some. The guidelines did specify to change the screening from a window of 28 to 32 weeks in the third trimester to be 28 weeks to give you that opportunity to get adequate treatment in before delivery, hopefully. So that that was a change that's probably consequential right now. Yeah. And I think in talking to our OB colleagues who we vetted this recommendation with before we came out with it, it isn't too terribly difficult to leverage a glucose tolerance test into an additional screen for syphilis at that time or so. (laughs) It may not be perfect, but you know, just getting that second screen in around that time is is quite effective if they're engaged in prenatal care. Now, I think the struggle that everybody has is women who are not yet engaged or have not yet arrived in your state to engage. (laughs) All of these are struggles, but, you know, we've got so much work to do with the people who are in front of us who we can find, working with our clinician colleagues to make sure that these women are treated followed closely and looking at their outcomes, I think is incredibly important. You know, we have perinatally exposed infants born to HIV positive women. What happens? What are their outcomes? And we have surprisingly little information about perinatally exposed or prenatally exposed syphilis exposures and infants. And I was lucky enough to have one of my fellows interested in this and we're competing to get our abstract accepted to pediatric academic societies because she actually surprisingly was able to tag 72 dyads where we found the infant 
following an exposure of some sort, this syphilis exposure, and there were potentially some developmental outcomes and growth outcomes at the one and two year marks that the pediatricians identified that were really surprising. Yeah. It could also be, right, that any woman who is at risk for acquisition of either syphilis or HIV, those rarer STIs, those, those are definitely women who probably have other things going on in their lives. What, what produced the risk environment for this? And what will then engender potential risk for um, subsequent child development, either in growth or the need for specialty referrals? Well, that's interesting. But so when is that meeting that that would be presented? (laughs) Well, not accepted yet. Um, But Amy Trisha's, you know, just submitted the abstract a couple weeks ago and we hope to present it and we'll see if they, if the topic is hot enough that they would even accept it as an oral presentation. Sounds like a hot topic to me. (laughs) We have our biases. So I think there's much more to learn now that syphilis has resurgent. And it was entirely our thinking in our state that we had gone back to 80s levels. And back at the 80s, we were doing third trimester screening much more consistently. Mm -hmm. So it was time. Well, it was time. That might be the, the segue for us to say that we've been here actually longer than we thought. Well, we'll wrap up now. I don't know if you have any words of wisdom for our audience about the future of STI care or STIs. We, we've made it through almost an hour without mentioning COVID, so, <laughs> which is so refreshing. <laughs> yeah. I'll share with you that one of the biggest arguments at the treatment guidelines meeting was not over the substance of the document itself, but the name of the document. Mm-hmm. And that, that we, we switched to calling it STI treatment guidelines rather than STD guidelines was such a big move for our field. And I think it's a recognition that even carriage and transmission of some of these infections without overt disease manifestations can result in a tremendous level of population morbidity. And I think that context and the COVID context that we will live in probably forever now, I think it's really changed our thinking in terms of, wow, it's silent carriage and transmission, it's repeated rescreening, it's really heightened levels of approaches until you develop other ways to prevent with vaccine and vaccine distribution. And then, then it becomes the Wild West with vaccine implementation and right. science not only getting, not always getting listened to. So I think COVID has actually really reframed a number of the things that I think that we will be doing in coming years related to what we hope will be a series of STI vaccines that will eventually be released and prevention beyond what I used to call beyond the latex barrier. <laughs> we, can, we can get beyond thinking that just condoms are the only thing standing between us and sexually transmitted infections. <laughs> that sounds like it will be a good day. <laughs> right. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking time out of what I'm sure is a very busy day and a very busy year. So we really appreciate you joining us and appreciate your work on producing the guidelines and you know being being so open to be to provide uh, training through the PTCs. They're really a great resource for for all of us. Best part of my job. Thank you so much for chatting today. It's such a joy to see you. Same here. All right. Take care then. 
Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.